So we are in uh, the second to last week in this sermon series that we have titled All Things New, I believe. And can I just say, uh, I had not got so much feedback in a, from a sermon or sermon illustration as I have over the past weeks. So apparently, there are a million ways that you all fold chip bags. Uh, I'm glad I'm not married to all of you because it would have been a fight if we would have been married together. And everybody's little strategy about how they do it, I didn't know that that was such a universal tension that people felt in their lives. But thank you. Thank you for teaching me that Paige was right all along, I guess, is what I got from all of that. Well, this week, uh, we're, I titled my sermon, A New Creation. And we're thinking about what it is when, when we say that God is making all things new, when God is renewing all things because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, what is it that we mean that God is actually doing? And this morning, we'll be talking about God making a new creation. And next week, uh, Pastor Brian is going to be preaching on a new witness talking about the Great Commission and what it means for us to have a sense of purpose in our lives as a church. And last week we talked about how we have these three parts of congregational life that we need to be mindful of. The first is congregational formation, that is, what is God doing in us? How is God forming us into these people that we call Christians and into a community that we call church? The second piece is spiritual formation. That is, how is God forming you and your heart to reflect his image in the world? In these final two weeks, we're talking about what we call neighborhood engagement. And what does it mean to be a church that isn't just here in the buildings, that isn't just about what we're doing here, but we're actually sent into the world to engage the world as a part of God's kingdom. And what I really want to do this morning is expand what I would suggest or my sense is our understanding of God's salvation. My, my sense is that we oftentimes, and I as a person who even grew up in the church, had a rather small view, uh, a small understanding of what we mean when we use that word salvation. And so we're going to be jumping in. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to flip with me to Revelation chapter 21. It's at the very end of this thing that we call the Bible, the final chapters. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7 together, which has kind of been the text that's grounded our whole sermon series, but I think it's helpful for us to read it together this morning. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. This is John writing about a vision that he saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had disappeared and there was no sea anymore. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It was prepared like a bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now God's presence is with his people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. Let me pause there real quick. The direction of God in this is really important. That God moves from heaven to earth, that things come to earth is a really important framework for our understanding of what it is that God is doing in the world. So many of us think that this is about us getting raptured up out of this place, but the testimony and witness of the scriptures is that God is coming here to renew all things. But go on, in verse 4, John continues, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death. Sadness, crying, or pain, because the old ways are gone. 
the one who is sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That's Jesus, by the way. Then he said, write this because these words are true and can be trusted. The one on the throne said to me, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give free water from the spring of the water of life to anyone who is thirsty. Those who win the victory will receive this and I will be their God and they will be my children. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When Levi uh, was beginning to get old enough where we could read books to him at night, by the way, if you marry a teacher, they're obsessed with you reading to them every single night. I never get a night off, right? And so we got to read to our kids every single night. And there was one book as Levi was beginning to read and we were reading to him that he just loved and obsessed over. It was one that many of you might be familiar with. It's Good Night Moon, right? There's a great green room, there's a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping, right? Yeah, I could do the whole book for you, right? And we would read this book over and over and over again. I had the whole thing memorized. I could probably still do the whole thing by memory. And we would sit and be like, where's the red balloon? Where's the mouse? Where's the house? Where's the old, yeah, right? Like all of these things. And I remember asking my parents if this was typical childlike behavior that they just want to read. Because I'd be like, let's read this other book, Levi. And he's like, no, red balloon, good night moon, whatever it is. And like any new parent, I was just looking for what are some tips and tricks of how I can manipulate my kid to not want to read this book anymore because it's making me go crazy. It doesn't seem like it'd make you go crazy, but doesn't it make you go crazy after a while where you're just like, I can't, I can't watch that show one more minute. And so I asked my parents, like, what can I do to try and get his attention onto a different book? And my mom laughed and she said, well, you could do what your dad always did. And I was like, well, what did he always do? (laughs) My dad, apparently, when we were kids, he would read a book and we would want to read it over and over and over again. Is he'd open the book up and he'd read like, you know, the first page. Then he'd skip like three pages and then read the next page and then like skip like five pages and read the end of the book. And my mom said it got so bad at one point where he would just read the first page and flip all the way to the last page and just read that and be like, all right, good night. It's time to go to bed. And she would just laugh in the kitchen and like when he would come out, just be like, you are the worst parent ever. And he's like, I can't read those books again. And uh, I haven't stooped to the insidious strategy of my father yet. I'm committed to my kids going to therapy for reasons that are other than I go to therapy. And so I'm not going to commit my dad's same errors, right? But there are nights when I want to read just the first page and the end of the book. And it seems to me that when it comes to the Gospels, when it comes to those four books that, that contain the biography of Jesus, that many of us have unintentionally read the stories that way. That we've read the beginning of the Gospels, which we love, Christmas, Nativity, And we emphasize that and we know the stories, there's shepherds and it's cute and there's a manger and there's donkeys and we set all these things out. And then we sort of quickly rush over some of that stuff in the middle to get to Easter, right? That's why Christmas and Easter, they're like the fullest services in church because we love the beginning and the end of the story because that's really the whole point, right? There are some scholars who who even say like the gospels are just 
they're passion narratives. They're, they're about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and some of them just have a longer introduction to that main part of the story than the others. And I remember when I was younger, this is how I read the, the Bible. And I want to say that I, I, I didn't think about it at the time, but I didn't have any sort of connection as to why all that stuff in between Jesus' birth and resurrection were in there. Why does Jesus heal people, in other words? Why does he feed people? What's the point of all of that? Why does he teach the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Because in my mind, the story was about salvation, and it was about my personal salvation. And I had a fairly common understanding of what salvation really meant, right? Summarized in what we would call the four spiritual laws that many of you might have heard of. But the four spiritual laws, as I learned them, go this way. God loves me, but I'm a sinner, and I've been separated from God from my sin. And Jesus is sent into the world so that I might be reconnected with God. That's the third one. And the fourth one is, if I accept Jesus, then I can receive salvation. In order to receive Jesus, I can receive salvation. And framed in that way, salvation becomes Uh, the focal point of salvation becomes about the forgiveness of my sins. The forgiveness of that thing that separates me from God. And this was my understanding of what the gospel was all about. This is my understanding of what salvation was all about. The the idea is that like God has this place called heaven. It would be better to go there than not go there, right? And so I have to, right, uh, accept Jesus because he kind of, is the way that God punishes my sin through him. And it became, okay, that's how I think of and conceive of salvation. But it left me wondering, then what is the point of all the miracles? What is the point of the feedings? What is the point of any of that stuff? How does any of that fit into this message of salvation and good news? And then I went to college and I started to discover that that God's acts of salvation was a lot bigger than just the forgiveness of my sins. There are these passages in scriptures, like in Luke chapter 18, where where there's this blind beggar who hears Jesus walking by, and he shouts out to Jesus, like, you know, God, I need your attention, I need your attention. And Jesus goes up to him, and he says, well, what do you want me to do for you, blind beggar? And the blind beggar is probably thinking, like, well, obviously, I want you to give me sight, right? And the blind beggar says to Jesus, I want to see. And Jesus says to him, what does he say? Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Some translations will say your faith has healed you, which I find a little disingenuous because the Greek word there is the same word that we will translate a little bit later on in in Luke 18, where Luke says, Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And so if healing is a part of God's saving, a part of Jesus' saving, how does that fit with my understanding that salvation is just about the forgiveness of my sins? My understanding of salvation when I got to college just began to grow and grow and grow. For a moment, let me use the imagery of a car to help kind of square this up. A car has many parts, right? You have wheels and tires, you have doors, you have a motor, you have a transmission, You have other things that are part of a car. I'm not a car person, so I'm not an expert on all things cars, but there are more than that, right? There's a lot of parts to cars. And to say that salvation is God's forgiveness 
and God's forgiveness alone would be like grabbing the steering wheel of a car and saying, this is the car. It's like, well, that's part of the car, but it's just part of the car. Grabbing God's forgiveness is this, like grabbing this one narrow part of what salvation is all about. We use the word justification to talk about forgiveness. It's that that proclamation that God says, you've been forgiven of your sins, but that's just one narrow little piece of God's salvation. See, what God is doing when we talk about God saving and healing the world is so much greater than just the forgiveness of our sins. God is trying to heal the world and free the world from its captivity to sin and all that sin has has wreaked and havoced on his creation in the world. And he's doing this, right, through the life and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. You see, this thing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that he brings our future hope as a present reality. Let me say it this way. So we read this text of Revelation chapter 21, right? And sorry for the deep biblical theology, but it's really important that you understand this. So what happens in Revelation 21, we have this hope that there will be a day where, where every tear will be wiped away from people's eyes. There will be no more death, no more sadness. There will be a new world. And all of our hearts collectively ache and long for that world, amen? Don't we all long and ache for a world where there is no violence? We long and we ache for a world where there's no more death, where there's no more sadness, there's no more sickness, where everybody is reconciled to one another. And we yearn for this. Well, what happens in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is Jesus takes that future hope and in Christ himself, he plants it into this current present moment of human history. Jesus says that death that that we anticipate not having anymore, guess what? I'm back, baby. Death doesn't conquer me. I am here. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, anybody who is in Christ, then they're also new creation. They're also this future hope that's living in this present reality. And it's in Jesus, and it's in those who have their faith in Jesus, in which God is beginning to heal and save the world, to free the world from all of its brokenness, to bring all of our future hope into this present moment of time. And that is a massive view of salvation, amen? It's not just about me and mine. It's about God's creation and the world and my neighbor. Some would say it's a cosmic view of salvation. And when you begin to read the scriptures that way, when you begin to to cease to skip over those few pages of Jesus' life and ministry, you realize like what Jesus is doing in his church is he's bringing into the world this kingdom that we call the kingdom of God that is the source of salvation and healing for our world. Um, so as I'm in college and I'm learning like, whoa, healing and feeding, that's God's salvation. My mind began to open up that maybe I didn't just misunderstand Jesus's life. Maybe I sort of fundamentally misunderstood some of the scriptures and I began to sort of pay attention to all the scriptures about how God is saving the world. And one of the things that jumped out to me was it the way that God is saving and healing the world from its captivity to sin is by caring for those who are oppressed and poor and experiencing all the worst sorts of humanity that exists in the world. 
And I couldn't believe what I found when I started reading the Bible. And I'm like, whoa, this seems really important to God. And I started picking up on verses. I'm going to read a bunch of them to you because I want you to understand how central this is to the story of Scripture. Is that the saving work of God involves caring for those who have experienced the worst of the consequences of sin in the world. You're not going to be able to flip through the Bibles to keep up with me. I'm sorry. But you're going to have to listen, right? Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of all those who have nothing. Speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will have everything he needs, but the one who ignores the poor will receive many curses. Job 5, 15 through 16. He saves, God saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. 1 John 3, 17 through 18. Suppose someone has enough to live and sees a brother or sister in need but does not help. Then God's love is not living in that person. My children, we should love people not only with words and talk but by our actions and true caring. Matthew 19, 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be holy, we love this verse, as Nazarenes, then go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. If you do this, you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Ezekiel 16, 49. This was a sin of your sister Sodom. That famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah gets a little confused about why God judges them, right? But this is what Ezekiel says. She and her daughters were proud and had plenty of food and lived in great comfort, but she did not help the poor and needy. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever mistreats the poor insults their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 22, 9, generous people will be blessed because they share their food with the poor. Proverbs 29, 7, good people care about justice for the poor, but the wicked are not concerned. Proverbs 19, 17, being kind to the poor is like lending to the Lord. He will reward you for what you have done. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that Christ was rich, but for you he became poor, so that by becoming poor you might become rich. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8, if there are poor among you in one of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be selfish or greedy toward them, but give freely to them and freely lend them whatever they need. Luke 6, 20 through 21, looking at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Psalm 82, 3 through 4. Defend the weak and the orphans. Defend the rights of the poor and suffering. Save the weak and helpless. Free them from the power of the wicked. Psalm 140, 12. I know the Lord will get justice for the poor and will defend the needy in court. Isaiah 58, 6 through 7 and verse 10. Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them and not to hide them, hide yourself from your own kin. If you feed those who are hungry and take care of the needs of those who are troubled, then your light will shine in the darkness and you will be bright like sunshine at noon. Proverbs 14, 21, it is a sin to hate your neighbor, but being kind to the needy brings happiness. 
Proverbs 31, 9, speak up and judge fairly and defend the rights of the poor and needy. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, punish those who hurt others, help the orphans, stand up for the rights of the widows. Isaiah 41, 17, the poor and needy people look for water, but they can't find any. Their tongues are dry with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer their prayers. I, the God of Israel, will not leave them to die. Jeremiah twenty two sixteen, 16, he helped those who were poor and needy, so everything went well for him. This is what it means to know God, says the Lord. Luke 12, 13 through 14, and said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, then you will be blessed because they have nothing and cannot pay you back. Luke 4, 17 through 19, Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Last one, it's not the last one in the Bible, it's the last one I'll read because I know it's a lot of verses that I've been reading to you guys. James 1, 27. Religion that God accepts as pure and without fault is this, caring for, po- for orphans or widows who need help and keeping yourself free from the world's influence. There are way more. There are way more. I remember this truth popped into my, like I discovered this and it blew my mind. If you were to read and list all of the verses of scripture about sexuality in the Bible is less than 100. I think it's less than 75, but less than 100 is probably a fair statement. But if you listed, on the other hand, all the verses that have to do with poverty, the poor, injustice, there are literally thousands of them. And I'm in college and I'm sitting and I'm wondering, when it comes to God's salvation, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to what God is doing to heal and save the world, why did this over here feel like there were thousands of verses, right? So like they preach and you're... 15 and 16 year old, don't have sex, don't do all those things. It felt like that was like the emphasis. And yet when you look at the biblical emphasis on what it is that God is doing in the world, how it is that God is saving, it has a lot to do with healing all of the brokenness that we see is a result of greed and violence and injustice in the world. How did I go grow up in the church thinking, not even knowing that this all existed here. Well, that's because we were just kind of skipping through the pages of the scriptures. And we live in this world right now where it's almost like we have to pick sides, right? There's a side within the church in America that says the most important truths that you can be preaching and proclaiming about the good news is that people can be forgiven of their sins, and that's the thing that you have to emphasize as a pastor and as a preacher and as a congregation. And there's this other side that says, well, it's all about social justice and caring for the poor, and we have this like almost dichotomy as if we have to pick one of these two sides, but one of the things that I love about being a Nazarene and about the Wesleyan holiness movement is we don't pick sides. In our church, we say yes to the spiritual truths of what God is wanting to do in people's lives and forgiving them and freeing them of the sin that they've experienced in their lives. And we say yes to justice and caring for the poor and needy because in our theology, we say all of that is salvation because salvation is really, really, really big. 
And we absolutely, as a church, cannot play into this, well, we are this kind of church or we are this kind of church. We embrace the totality of the witness of the scriptures of what God is doing to save and heal and free the world from its sin. Either of those sides shortchanges what the gospel is all about, what, what, what Jesus was inaugurating in his life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, we have to care about our neighborhood and world, church. We have to care that there are hungry people. We have to care that there are homeless people. We have to care that there are sick people because God is saving them and our world. There is this uh, pastor in uh, Simi Valley that many of you, I'm sure, have heard of. His name is Francis Chan here in Ventura County. And I was listening to a podcast with him Uh, not too long ago, and he was telling this story about how in his church, there was this family who had fostered 11 kids in their home. 11. I can't deal with my two, and I have to love them. (laughs) Like, they had 11. And they were in their mid-60s, still fostering and caring for these kids. And they came and met with him one day, and they said, Pastor, I don't understand why you don't care about those foster kids in our community, and our church doesn't care. And they cited this verse, James 1 to 27. Religion that God accepts is pure and without fault is this, caring for orphans or widows who need help. And they said, how is it possible that in America there are supposedly millions and millions of Christians and there are 500,000 orphans? How is that possible? And so Francis Chan, people in church are like, you're right. We should take that seriously. And so they went and they started fostering kids. And they started telling other people in their church that they were fostering kids. And it began to spark something in their church where everyone in their church said, hey, we're going to take scripture seriously. We're going to take this seriously as an expression of God's healing, saving work in the world. We're going to support the foster care system in our county. And it got to the point in their church where they, they had families wanting to foster kids and the county was like, we're all out. Like your church is literally taking all of the kids into homes already. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And the foster care system began to turn to the church saying, hey, we need support here. We need help. We know you have people who want to help. And this church is the saving work of God in the world where the church engages the needs of its community in a powerful, sacrificial way. This is the kind of neighborhood engagement that we ought to participate in as a church. When we do food share once a month here, this isn't uh, public relations for our church. This isn't to say like, hey, we want the neighborhood to think well of us and maybe they're a little bit more open to the gospel message if, we, if they saw that we were giving food and being nice people. This is not PR. That's what celebrities do. They're like, we're going to do these nice things so that you like us better and maybe you're a little bit more receptive to us. No. Food share is about participating in God's salvific work and his kingdom work of healing the world. 60% of families in our county have food insecurities. And we say as a church, we're like, no, there's more than enough for everyone. Let's share God's bounty with those who are in need in our community. When we do our items of the month every single month, it's not just to like 
do a sort of nice religious thing that we're here to do. It's like, no, we actually want to participate in God's kingdom-saving work in the world. This month is Habits After Humanity. All of us, right, feel the strain of housing right now. I mean, except for us, it's so affordable and cheap and right now, right? It's so hard. And we say we actually want to support people who are having a really difficult time with housing in our county. But this extends beyond just charitable work in the world. It's the way that you need to see your work that you go about Monday through Friday. Every time Elaine has her orchard and talks about lemons, do you know what that is? That is participation in the way that God is choosing to feed the world. Every time that Scott gets a great deal for somebody on their insurance claim, probably because they like don't have a lot of money in the bro. Every time that happens, that is the way that God is providing for those people. Every time Pastor Bryant is at the hospital visiting the sick, he is visiting Christ himself in that work. He is meeting the sufferings of this world with presence. Every time that Becca Young is sitting down with a kid to help them with their educational challenges, she's helping a young person progress and move in her life. Every time Becca Wilbur is sitting and trying to help a kid who doesn't know how to speak yet learn how to speak and communicate, she's helping reconcile them to the rest of the community so they can participate in life. Every time Eric teaches junior high math, he probably doesn't feel this ever. It's his way of contributing to the overall development and good that kids are able to to, to grow and, and be able to be productive members of every time our work is engaged with this kind of stuff. It is participation in God's kingdom work. And our call as a church is to make that the focal point of our lives. To bring God's massive, huge salvation into the world that it might bear witness to what God is doing. And there are times, right? Whew, I gotta wrap up, sorry. There are times when it feels like mustard seed kind of work, doesn't it? Where you're just like, I don't know, our food pantry we shared, like, you know, we serve 15 families. It doesn't feel like that much, but it's a mustard seed. Every time that, that we collect the item of the month, we're like, well, I guess we got 20 toys for Christmas shop. That feels like a mustard seed. It doesn't feel huge. But when we continue and persist in that effort, it can change everything for a person. I'll wrap up with this last story. There was a guy who came to our food share this, like a couple of weeks ago. And I try to be like generally pretty friendly and all the people who are there generally pretty friendly. And so I'm like, hey, how's it going? You know, just put on the whole face and thing and make people feel welcome. I I recognize this is an awkward thing to come and try and get food because you don't have food. There's shame and embarrassment that comes with our culture because of that. And when they were leaving, he they're, they're pulling out of the, the parking lot, and they came over, they drove over to where we were sitting before they left, and, and this gentleman said to me, he said, you know, thank you for the food for sure, but more than anything, thank you for the smiles. I just needed to be uplifted a little bit this morning. It is so hard to be here. And it's just mustard seed stuff. It's the way that our church participates in God's salvation What we need to discern and discover as a church and you as individuals is how are you engaging this saving work of God? May we do so in faithful, fruitful ways for his glory. Amen? Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 